Hello, welcome to Denton North Church. If you're new here, I'd like to um, just welcome you. I'm also new here, so if we haven't met yet, hello, I am Darby. I don't remember if I said that earlier. Cool. So we're going to go on to announcements. Oh, yes. So if you haven't done FOJ, which is our Focus on Jesus study, which is a one-on-one Bible study, and you're a part of our church body and not a college student, um, you can sign up at this link. I'm not going to say it because it's up there. Um, But yeah, so if you are a part of Focus and haven't done FOJ yet, you can talk to your Corfa or somebody on staff. Um, But yeah, this is a great way to just set a base level to build a relationship with somebody else um, and study the Bible together. And then we also have our life transformation groups. So these are also for people who are not in college anymore. So this is a way to do discipleship um, and build community in a smaller area. This church is pretty big, and it's a great way to make this a little bit smaller. So yeah. And then we have our ladies' lunch. Woo! So this is next Sunday after church. Um, So if you're not a college student, once again, we do a lot of stuff for the college students in Focus. So if you're not a part of Focus, let's go to this ladies' lunch. Woo! Cool. I'm going to invite Leslie up. She's going to share some about giving. Um, So my name's Leslie, and I'm on staff here at Denton North, and I want to welcome you all here this morning. We have been doing just some short talks on Sundays about giving, and it's been like a three-week break since we did our last one, so I just want to kind of remind you why we're doing this. Um, We wanted to give you something practical, to give us something practical to be able to evaluate our giving and to be able to take the next step in our giving towards being a generous giver like our God is. And so that's our purpose in these talks. Uh, Just by way of review, again, to help you take the next step, we divided giving into kind of four different levels. There's nothing magical about this. I would say there's probably nothing even truly biblical about this. It's just a way to be able to evaluate giving. So the first one is the rookie giver. Um, The rookie giver really has no plan to give and gives pretty inconsistently out of just what might be in their pocket. The second level of giver is a regular giver. And the regular giver gives on a consistent basis a regular amount. That's where the word regular comes from. The relative giver gives regularly, and they give relative to what their income is. And so they base their giving off of what their income is. That's the relative giver. And then the fourth level is the radical giver. And the radical giver has the attitude of not how much should I give, but how much should I keep. The radical giver orchestrates their spending and their lifestyle around their desire to be a generous giver. And so it's kind of the opposite way of how a lot of us think about giving. I'll do my budget for how I need to live and I'll give out of whatever I have left. The radical giver does the opposite of that. So we've already looked at the rookie giver and today we're going to look at the regular giver and just how to become better at being a regular giver. So the regular giver is a conscious giver that gives a consistent part of their budget. The regular giver sees the vision that the church has and has intentions to contribute a consistent amount 
towards reaching those goals. It goes from giving being unusual and every once in a while to giving being a very normal thing. And it feels less like someone's twisting your arm to give and you start to be more happy about being able to give. So becoming a regular giver, step number one. Again, ask others about their motivation for giving. What motivates you to give? And hear what they have to say about why they give. And start to think about why it's important for you to give. Some of the reasons that people might have for giving is some people out of that Matthew 6, 19 and 20, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. They want to give to leave a legacy, um, a, a spiritual godly legacy. Um, some people want to give out of um, a heart of it reminds me that everything I have belongs to God, and it just keeps things in perspective for me about what's truly important. I think when I first started giving regularly, the reason that I did is out of a sense of, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. I just really loved God, and I really loved the way that he loves people, and so I wanted to follow his command to give generously, and that was one of my reasons when I first started giving. I think an important reason to give is because you're bought into the mission and the vision of the church that you attend and that you believe it's worth doing what they do. And so for us, our mission, while it may not be, it may not look exactly like this, this is the core behind it. Our mission is to make and mature disciples to the glory of God. And our vision is to be a place where hearts are turned to God and lives are changed. Again, that can look a lot of different ways, but those are the cores behind those two things. And so the question is, do you believe that those are worth giving to? And I would go a little bit further to say, as you think through what our mission and our vision that we're trying to accomplish here at Denton North is, if you can't get behind that, why not? And if it's that you don't believe that's God's mission, then go somewhere where you do believe that it's his mission. I think it's really important to be a part of a community that you're invested and that you can back with everything you have um, to make that happen. And so you need to be in a community where you believe in the mission wholeheartedly and you're ready to get behind that. Uh, secondly, Commit to giving on a regular basis. That's the second step. So treat giving and generosity as a discipline. Commit to doing it regularly. And give even when it hurts. Even when it's not comfortable. Even when it's not easy. Recognize that it's something that we have to work on and grow in. We're not just suddenly going to wake up and find ourselves generous givers one day. Like, that's something we have to work at. It's a discipline. It's something we have to do. And then thirdly, decide on a percent to give. So decide how much of your income, what percent of your income do you want to start with as your goal for giving. And so you'll be giving consistently on a regular basis, and you'll be giving a certain percentage of your income. And then the last thing, and this goes with every one of them, so I'm not 
particularly going to include this as a step, is to continue to pray. Ask God to change your heart to be a generous and a cheerful giver. Ask God to give you the desire to want to give. Um, And then watch what the Holy Spirit does in enabling you to do that and giving you that change of heart that you've asked for. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, and 8 says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Like, that's not what this is about. We're not here to compel you to give. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So our purpose is to help you become the giver God wants you to be, to help you become generous like he is, and to help you have some practical ways to really think through that and really be able to grow in that. Again, I would tell you, if you have any questions, if you um, have anything that you need help with, maybe in terms of budgeting to be able to give, ask any of us and we'll be happy to um, talk with you more about that. If you want some more specific scriptures, whatever it is that you need to be able to move forward with giving, we would be happy to talk with you personally about that if that's what you need. And I'm going to pray. God, I just pray that as we look at you and we see what a good and generous God that you are to us, that it would motivate us and that it would inspire us to be a giver like you're a giver. I pray, God, that you'll teach us what that looks like practically with the money that you've given us. Um, I pray, God, that you would change our hearts to see giving as something that we get to do and want to do and not something that we necessarily just have to do. I pray, God, that our hearts will reflect yours more and more and that we would use what you've given us in order to make and mature disciples of the people that are around us in order to love people well, too. Um, God, thank you so much for being a generous giver. In Jesus' name, amen. The scripture um, where Jesus is telling that, you know, anything that you've sacrificed uh, in this life, you'll not fail to receive a hundred times, both in this life and the next. I think a lot of us tend to think of that as being like, well, what is that exactly? You know, what does that mean? Does that mean like I'm going to put in a a penny and get a dollar out uh, eventually? And then you have all these weird Christian stories about that, which is very strange because that's not what the scripture means. Uh, but what it actually means is that we get a whole lot of people that are now in our lives and God redistributes through our giving a lot of that money to those who actually need it. Uh, and that's what I love. Especially some of you guys are socialists, you know? You, you want to be a socialist? Fine. Be a socialist. Redistribute your money through the church. Let God be in, uh, in charge of that. So I love that. Plus, also, I don't want to be responsible for all my money. Are you kidding me? I mean, I'm pretty selfish with the stuff that I do. I want to be able to give uh, enough of it away to say that God is in control of this and, uh, and I have no decision over it. So uh, be thinking about that. I'm pretty much a numbers guy. We've got about $25,000 in the bank right now. Uh, that's up from about 15, uh, which is from about two months ago, but 15 of that 15 was given to us. So we would have had no money in the bank. Guys, that's not too crazy. Our churches have always worked kind of in the blackish red area. Um, but my goal for us as a church is not that we get a huge lump sum, although $45,000 is about what we, what we probably want, because that's about six months of, of expenses ahead of time. Uh, the biggest deal is getting people to start giving who don't give. Some of you need to give. We need to, as a church, be all in 
giving uh, and not just have a few of us who've been mostly supporting our ministry so far uh, grow up and actually have a number of people giving, whatever that amount is. And plus, I would really love up, up, up and above that 45000 to give 10000 over to the Arlington Church. Every other church, when a church was planted, gave uh, seed money. We got like 12 from Wiley, 16 from Garland. Uh, and so it would be just awesome, phenomenal to be able to give them something. So that's our goal in the next year. Uh, if you're specific about numbers and want to see our books, which I don't even know what that means, uh, see our finances, things like that, you honestly can look on Facebook because I already made a PowerPoint, okay? I keep trying to get people to look at that PowerPoint because it's so awesome, but no one does. Uh, it's got real specific numbers about salaries, about expenses, things like that. Nothing is hidden around here. Um, so, yeah, good deal. All right, we're continuing on. Anybody read uh, the passages this week? Yes, no, good. Okay, it's all up on Facebook, folks. You have the ability to prepare so that if uh, I finish and you have no idea what it is I said, I'm going to say first, hey, did you read the passage? And then they're going to say no, and I'm going to say, not answering your question. So you've got opportunity to read through this. For those of you who it's your first time or maybe you've slept through the last couple, uh, what we're doing is talking about the basics of Christian identity from the Scripture. Who are we in Christ, in the Lord? All of these passages that talk about how things change when we begin, begin to follow Jesus, put our faith in God, like what happens? We've talked about things both happening in the past, things that are just objectively done in your life, and those things that are kind of ongoing, and we're drawing from 160 in Christ passages and then the Psalms themselves. Now, I intentionally did not pick a Psalm today. One, because I want that to be your assignment, is that you pick a Psalm, that makes sense out of what we're going to be talking about today. And it'll be really easy, actually, because we're talking about suffering. And the Psalms are jam-packed with uh, words of suffering, prayers of suffering, um, talking to God about suffering. So you'll do that sort of as an assignment on your own. But that's where we're going with this. So last week, uh, we read through, uh, well, it was actually kind of a difficult one. This one should be quite a bit easier. But we had a couple points from, uh, from last week that I want to uh, remind you of, all right? And then we're going to launch off of that and, uh, and go from there. So last week, the three points were we aren't condemned by evil, uh, evil forces of death that are opposed to God. We're no longer condemned by those. This is just an objective truth, right? We aren't simply controlled by our human impulses, personality, that stuff. That's just not who we are at the base or core anymore. We're just simply not just controlled or simply controlled by that. And then the third one is we aren't randomly fearful of God, okay, but intentionally afraid in terms of reverence. So I want to draw on that and tell you what I think are the implications of that for this topic of suffering, all right? So first, if death doesn't condemn us, suffering isn't the end, okay? Our suffering isn't the end if death doesn't condemn us anymore. It's not the end of things. Our suffering doesn't finalize stuff, and nor is our final uh, uh, you know, reward in this life going to be death, all right? So if death doesn't condemn us, suffering isn't the end. If human impulse isn't in control, then suffering won't ruin us. No matter how much we suffer, no matter what we go through, we won't be ruined by that suffering, okay? So these are just implications, three basic implications from last week's points that was kind of a part one. This is a part two if you're writing them down. And certainly, if you have any questions, you can always stop me and ask for clarification, all right? And then three, if we don't randomly fear God, 
but instead revere him, we can believe he will use suffering to bring about good in us, okay? So suffering isn't the end, it won't ruin us, and we can trust that God will actually take our suffering and do something with it, bring about good from it. How many of you have seen The Matrix? If you haven't seen The Matrix, fine. You at least know of the red-blue pill meme, right? Everyone kind of knows of that? Red-blue? No? Do I need to explain it? No? No? Yeah? Maybe? So, Matrix is just in short, at least the first film, it's kind of about a whole bunch of people being plugged in to a virtual reality, and they just sort of live their entire life in that reality, not knowing that they're basically in an incubator with a whole bunch of things plugged into them, all right? And there's a band of rebels that sort of find this out and uh, are looking to try to overthrow these machines that have incubated humans and basically are just keeping humans in this virtual world. Well, Keanu Reeves, which we gotta love Keanu Reeves, right? He's got like one role, that like wooden personality of his, but he's so awesome. I mean, you know, especially John Wick movies, yeah. Um, not that I'm recommending you see them. But anyway, uh, is supposedly gonna be this kind of savior type fellow. And uh, Neo, uh, played by Lawrence Fishburne, basically sits him down, gives him the option between the red pill and the blue pill. The blue pill, you can go back to being incubated. You forget all of the stuff that we've told you about how the real world is. And the red pill, uh, all we promise you is that you'll know the truth of you know, what, what's coming. We're not going to promise you anything more than that, right? So the red, blue, red uh, blue pill kind of conundrum has always been in memes ever since then about do you really want to know the truth or do you want to sort of stay ignorant uh, of... Uh, your life. And actually, there's a, a character in the film that goes back. You know, he does want the blue pill. So he, he took the red pill, but then wants to go back into the virtual reality. And the scene in The Matrix is really stark. I mean, the, the uh, world looks terrible. It's trashed. It's all dark. They're living in caves. I mean, this, is, this red pill comes with not just knowledge of uh, the world as it is, but it comes with this huge responsibility to be a part of this you know, long shot crew to try to reverse what's gone on uh, on Earth. And I think the thing that's so amazing about The Matrix is it's if you watch the movie and you kind of think about it, it's really hard to want to choose the red pill. Like, it's really a tough life. Like, there's a lot of suffering that goes along in having chosen to be or cho choosing to do what Neo does. Um, I got that name wrong, didn't I? Yeah, that's okay. It happens. Thank you, yeah, for whoever said that. Anyway, I think this is a lot like suffering in the Christian faith, is when you sign up to be a Christian, you sign up for a whole different understanding of what suffering is. And in some ways, you sign up for an additional amount of suffering that you wouldn't have to go through if you chose not to be a Christian, okay? And so suffering is really key to the identity of a Christian person. And so I want to talk about that and, uh, and make a little bit of sense of that. But just like in the movie, The Matrix, God uses that suffering for a purpose. And that purpose isn't just knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but to reverse what's gone on on earth through a small band of people who are sort of committed to him. And I think that's why Christians have loved The Matrix and loved to use illustrations like I just did. All right, we're going to read through uh, for, uh, 2 Timothy 1. And in verses 1 through 14, 
Good to go. Should have pulled these up already. Forgot to. And as always, when we read through these passages, kind of try to think through exactly what this may have to say about um, identity, all right? So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. So there's one, right? Life in Christ Jesus. Objective, subjective. Yeah, this one's kind of subjective and both subjective in the sense of what is exactly he's talking about, this promise of life. Christians have often misread this as life later, but that's not exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about both the promise of life now and later. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, the subjective objective, remember, is just the, if, is it happened in the past? Did God already do it? We need to believe it. Or is it sort of happening as time goes on? It's a present thing that God is doing in us. It's important to understand and know the differences between the two. And if you need to know why that is, listen to two sermons ago. All right, to, to, uh, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. Quick background, so Timothy is kind of Paul's right-hand man, would go on to lead various churches and uh, seemed to be somewhat young for his day and age and quite a bit timid, not normally like leadership material. And so Paul talks a lot about that. And uh, in this case in particular, as Paul's nearing the end of his life, he's, uh, he's talking particularly about Timothy not being um, ashamed of what's going on with Paul. For this reason, I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline, okay? Power, love, self-discipline. We'll we'll review this uh, or come back to it in just a moment, but those are subjective things about identity. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, who, uh, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality, both to light through the gospel. As you can see, life and immortality. So these are not just simply talking about uh, life in heaven. And of this gospel, I was appointed to a, as a herald and an apostle and a teacher. This is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I believed and am convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you have heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now, if you actually take this apart and try to understand it, it's pretty complicated. And it actually kind of doesn't make sense in some sections. So we're not gonna try to do that. What I'm gonna try to do is just pull something that I think is very, very simple Uh, And that is simply, in Christ, we don't have to be ashamed of suffering. Okay, that's it. In Christ, we do not have to be ashamed of suffering. What do we mean by suffering? Well, too often we think about persecution. Guys, let's be honest. As Christians in this society, we experience very little, if uh, any at all, persecution from society around us. Okay? Uh, If we do, it's probably more self-persecution than it is uh, outside persecution. You feel like society is persecuting you, uh, but we'll talk about that later. I'm thinking three things here. Number one, discipline. 
whether that's self-discipline, the discipline that God gives us, natural consequences, blah, 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 whatever else, our failures, again, could be mistakes, could be simple, we misheard God, uh, could be we tried something, didn't work, whatever, and then, and then various injustices around us, whether they be racial injustice, gender injustice, sexuality, whatever it is, uh, class, all those things, those are kind of my three, probably the biggest aspects of suffering that we experience regularly, right? I don't know if you guys have another one. I mean, there's probably plenty others. Some of them could just be mental illness, personality, genetics. I don't know. There's probably a lot of things. What? Makes me suffer. Yeah, no one's laughing because they know that it's true. For once, I'm right and you're wrong. Anyway, so... Yeah, uh, injustice, failure, and, and discipline, all right? These are the things that I think. Now, they're ashamed at this point, or their reason for being ashamed both overlaps with some of our reasons for being ashamed for suffering and kind of doesn't. So let me draw out a, a few lines for you. Number one, uh, they're both, well, go ahead. You have a question? Oh, you're cold? Cuddling, yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad you guys are cuddling. <laughs> I'm glad this topic of suffering is romantic to you. So it's good. All right. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So they're actually being ridiculed by society around them, primarily from one aspect is the Jewish uh, culture that doesn't think of Christianity as, as a good thing, a right thing, a true thing, and then Greek culture, which we talked about, who thinks Christianity is pretty stupid and pretty lame. So they're actually being ridiculed. So the source of their suffering ultimately comes from a lack of honor in their society, something that we don't really think much about today, but a lack of position, power, honor, uh, and ultimately would come back to what we would call belonging. That's really what they suffered. Now, in addition to that, they suffered physical pain, okay? A lot of physical pain. A lot of Christians were beaten, abused, tortured, killed simply because uh, they were Christian. And of course, there is, you know, usually a, a good reason uh, for other people to harm them, uh, to get what they want, whether it was land or property uh, or whatever else, okay? In our kind of common uh, situation, most of our ridicule does not come from outside. It is self-ridicule. We ridicule ourselves, okay, for reasons that could come back to not being successful enough, not being authentic, those of us who are postmodern people. We have all kinds of reasons that we ridicule ourselves. We're sort of the source of uh, our own suffering, feeling like we've got to, again, belong to the world around us. And its definition of success is the definition of what's authentic, which authenticity is such a strange term anyway, because it's so dependent upon culture, which isn't authentic at all, right? At all, even a little bit. So that's, that's strange. So we, we kind of, kind of can, uh, you know, overlap in their uh, suffering in that a lot of our suffering comes from wanting to belong uh, to something around us. We talked about this a lot when we first started talking about identity. So much of suffering comes from a lack of belonging, all right? What we can say, though, about their suffering in terms of it being different than ours is that their suffering wasn't just about um, sort of self-thinking and self-ridicule, but they were literally being forced to do different things, okay? 
and they were the minority in a time period where, uh, you know, minority rights just didn't exist for most people unless you'd been around for a long time like the Jewish people. Guys, we're not in that same situation, right? We're a majority in our country, although you can argue that maybe real Christians are a minority. The point I'm trying to make here is so much of our suffering now is different than the kind of suffering that they dealt with, but no less, okay, no less uh, uh, related to the scriptures that we're talking about, that we don't have to be ashamed of the suffering that we experience, even though most of it uh, is, is probably kind of wrapped up in our mind. Now, where does this leave sin and being ashamed of sin? Well, these passages are not talking about being, not being ashamed of your sin. They're talking about, uh, you know, maybe in sort of like a long, you know, distance way. Uh, this is much more just talking about suffering that's a much broader topic than our sin. So in Christ, we don't have to be ashamed of our suffering. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 16. Be our next passage here. Yeah, first, uh, that's science. Uh, 4, 13 through 16. Now, that is good news that in Christ, we don't have to be ashamed uh, of our suffering. But many of you probably have never thought about that and never are really paying much attention to that, maybe even now. Again, as a society, we don't suffer a lot. We do almost everything in our power, try to not suffer. And the suffering that we do feel feels more intense, I think, sometimes because we don't suffer so much. It's kind of like we talked about death and how we don't experience death much, and so we're terrified of it. So we've got to kind of bring some of these suffering passages in if we're going to make sense of them, because suffering is a real huge part of being a Christian. And if we're not suffering much, we've got to decide, okay, what's missing then from our identity? This isn't a topic that we've chosen to leave at the end of the sermon series, as if it's kind of like an afterthought. Suffering is one of the most important identity markers for a Christian. And I think what's our biggest challenge is trying to bring that in our day and age where many of us simply don't suffer that much. And we're not going to try to broaden the topic so that we can include, you know, being sad as suffering, but we are going to talk about how is it as Christians, we need to think about this suffering. So I want to make this point, and this is my second point, my, my, I only have two. So the first one in Christ, we don't have to be ashamed of suffering. And this might not seem immediately um, related, but hopefully I'll make sense of it in a moment. So the second point from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 16 is in Christ, this life is as meaningful as the next. Okay? This life is as meaningful as the next. Now, this is going to be a strange idea to many of you because we've been taught that this life is sort of like a passing through and heaven is like sort of the real place where, you know, things are supposed to be where they're at, and this is going to be great, and it's going to be a milestone, and we're going to be excited. I think that some of us may be sorely disappointed if we don't, if we uh, sort of um, go through this life without really ever living heaven on earth, as Jesus tells us to pray, and then all of a sudden get to heaven, and it will be like a milestone that you've gotten to, and then you realize, oh, that wasn't near as good as I thought, (laughs) And uh, if you want to challenge that idea, read a number of really good books on, uh, on uh, heaven and hell, one of which I'll uh, reference in a moment that my dad, who's with us today after heart surgery, great thing. One of these books is uh, what he's said uh, for a long time, it's the only book that he can remember ever reading uh, and loved it. And apparently it was in college. So that's, uh, that's something to say. Pretty good book. All right, four, 13 through 16. Here we go. 
Oh, I had. Why is that? No. Sorry, I'm in the some other page. As for other, oh no, 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 no. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, this is interesting because you could take this both ways. Um, you could take this in this, the way that we normally take it, which is they have no hope of an afterlife, right? But actually, Paul's talking to the church at Thessalonians, or the church at Thessalonica, and they've taken it the opposite way. They've thought, you know, hey, if heaven's coming soon, second coming, we don't have to work, we don't have to do anything, let's just wait around for God to come. I remember seeing a bumper sticker at UTD saying, you know, the, uh, you know so heavenly-minded, no earthly good. Yeah, you heard that one maybe? No? You got so, so wrapped up in spiritual things and heavenly things that you can't do anything of value around you. I mean, it goes both ways, right? It's vice versa. You can be so earthly-minded uh, uh, that you're no heavenly good. Um, but that's, I think, what Paul is talking about in part is that, uh, you know, people who have no hope, this can go both ways. You have no hope in the life now, or you have no hope in the life after. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we are st- who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call, of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, who we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Uh, therefore, encourage one another with those words. I like that last one because I just can't imagine like telling that to someone when they're really down and being like, see, encouraged, right? I mean, because it's just such a like, we just don't think much about this stuff. And this is, wouldn't be a very encouraging scripture usually for us unless maybe we were on our deathbed, uh, and uh, maybe it could be encouraging in that sense. So this life is as meaningful as the next. I won't go too much in trying to make sense of all of what's going on here, but I will simply say this. God is coming down from heaven to meet those who uh, will be resurrected in the air. You see a very intentional message that this isn't about heaven and earth going away and heaven being the only place, but these worlds combining and coming together. And the implications of that is this life that we live at earthly lives is just as meaningful as the next. God is making meaning out of the things that we are doing right now with each other. And those things will last into heaven. People say, well, uh, how could I have a memory? Because then I'll be sad. Uh, I think God could sort of figure that out, okay? I don't think we just sort of reset with no memory and we'll become like completely different people. Well, then how, if I have a memory, I'll be sad. Well, listen. There are some really strange ideas about heaven, okay? Gregory of Nyssa, which, uh, who was I talking about the other day that was reading that? I think Ben, but I don't know Ben. Yeah, Ben. Um, Gregory, one of the early church fathers, had this really strange idea that um, in heaven, nobody would be made perfect. That the whole point of heaven wasn't that automatically you get into heaven and boom, you're perfect, but that you, God is making you into his image more... Um, without any obstacles like there are obstacles here with our simple nature and those kind of things that our entire eternity would be spending becoming more and more like the character of God, not like the power of God. Okay, we're not gonna like own our own planets, things like that. I mean, I don't know. Maybe we are, who knows, okay? Uh, But the point is that he believed not in this sort of like, boom, you're dead, you rise, oh, you're perfect. And then you're gonna be bored the rest of your life being perfect, okay? He had some crazy ideas. I mean, the whole idea of progress he believed was really important to Uh, our spiritual faith. 
I was so, I, I was telling you about, I was reading this book, uh, to, well, I don't tell, tell you the title of it. It's called To the Scattered Bodies Go. To the Bodies Scattered Go. I, none of, neither one of us are going to be able to tell you the accurate title of that book, all right? Anyway, it was written by, in the 60s by uh, Jose Philip Farmer, won a Hugo Award for it. How many of you play video games? I was asking some other people the other day, does anybody know where spawning came from? Like you respawn, you die, and then boom, you pop right back up, either in another place or something like that. Anyone want to take a guess? No, oh, gosh, you're so young. What? What'd you say? Star Trek. No, that's a different process. It's Doom. It's Doom, okay? Doom in the early 90s. That's really the whole respawning thing. This book is literally about people who've been resurrected and respawn naked in uh, 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 somewhere along a river. And no matter how many times they die, they just keep respawning in another place in the river. And it follows this one guy that's pretty uh, important, uh, um, archaeologist, geologist from the 1900s. And he meets all these different people, including aliens, which there's like a small alien race that actually apparently blew up the earth in 2008. So dang, man. It's good, right? That when science fiction, science fiction is so funny like that, man. You know, you read science fiction, you're you get 2002, 2010, you're thinking like, whoa, they, they weren't really thinking that long into the future. Anyway, so you respawn, you can, you know, meet all these people, including uh, um, uh, Neanderthals and things like that. And one of the interesting things, that's my 24-minute reminder, that I'm, I'm going to try not to preach more than 24 minutes. All right, see ya. <laughs> all right, uh, oops, you know, you, you got to... Yeah, ratchet yourself down. Okay, uh, so in this book, what's really interesting is, I mean, the book is basically like on another planet. It's kind of purgatory. No one knows what's going on. The, there's a, uh, one of the funniest things is all the people who thought they would be in heaven who aren't, who are just so like indignant, okay? And then those people who actually thought they were going to be going to hell, but instead were in purgatory, are just like, okay, this is cool. Um, but there's a quote at the end that really is interesting to me. And uh, he basically just says, because there's no money to be gained anymore, uh, no work to be done, everybody just fights all the time. It's just war everywhere you go. And that's really the book. Everybody's warring with everybody. And because you know that if you get killed, you just are going to respawn. And so it's tricky because, you know, you kind of want to belong to the people around you, but you also sort of want to go places and you can, there's boats and things like that. River World Series, look it up if you want. I only read the first book. It was amazing and, and very interesting. Um, but it reminded me a lot of, uh, of this idea that in heaven, um, we have a tendency to think that everything is just sort of going to be perfect and there's nothing to do and that this life is sort of all the bad stuff and, uh, and they're not connected to each other in our minds. And we don't live as if they're connected. We live as if somehow we're Christian and so one day we're going to be raised up and all of a sudden be perfect and that's the end of life. It's like the worst story. It's so simple. So, uh, I don't know, it makes life so meaningless in the moment. But suffering has important meaning for us, okay? I want to make two statements to finish off here. How we deal with it is both the greatest testimony of who we are in Christ and may be the biggest joy that we have in Christ. Every time in the New Testament you see suffering, every time is too strong, let's say 80%, somewhere near there, you're going to get the word glory. That in participating in Christ's suffering, we also participate in his glory. 
and there are very few other scriptures that talk about the glory of God being attached to an identity marker for Christians. There's something in suffering, okay? Something in it that gives not only a testimony of who we are, but has for us probably one of the biggest joys we can have in Christ. So it makes you wonder if we live in a society that avoids suffering at all costs, how is it possible for us to even be Christians? Really, we ought to be asking that question. If, if, if suffering is so central to who uh, uh, we are in Christ, how is it even possible that we can be Christians in our society? And is it true that probably those people who suffer more than we do have a way better sense of what it means to be a Christian than we ever will? And so does it begs the question, should we invite suffering? I'm not so sure I'm there, but I certainly think we ought to welcome suffering in our lives. And if there's one thing we ought to do as Christians, it's when we experience suffering, not rush to get out of it, not hurry up to make good or ignore it, but to lean into it as one of the most important things we can do to grow close to God and to understand who he is. Especially in a society, again, where we don't experience this enough. And maybe it's not the society we don't, it's that us here in this kind of uh, place, in this uh, specific context, um, and I'm certainly uh, painting a broad brush here, so I don't want to uh, downplay any of the suffering that many of us have experienced in our life. But simply to say we ought to welcome suffering in our, our, uh, in our life. Paul mentions three areas in 2 Timothy, and I'll leave you with that, uh, where we can invite suffering for the sake of the gospel, okay? And that's important. Remember the apostles were counted worthy that we got to you know, suffer, we got to, uh, to be disgraced for the sake of the, the gospel. This is crazy. The earlier church was very much welcoming the kinds of suffering that they participated in. I don't think it was the kind of weird invitation of suffering that a lot of the early church fathers did where they stood on poles and you know, were out in the cold naked. Uh, they invited that kind of stuff. And I think suffering for the sake of suffering uh, is just as worthless as avoiding suffering altogether. It's suffering for the sake of the gospel. Three things Paul mentions in 2 Timothy. Number one is we love. He says the spirit that we've been given is a spirit of love. Guys, you gotta love people too much. And this is really hard. Because, uh, you know, I, I don't do this at all and very naturally. Some of you really are kind of gifted in this or, or understand it much better, I think. Uh, we have to love people too much. And by loving people too much, I'm not talking about codependent relationships, okay? I'm talking about loving people in a way that harms us but is good for them. Risking hurt and even harm. Loving people too much. And, and you're right. There's a suffering res, uh, that results from this and not knowing exactly where the line is and maybe going too far, but we ought to welcome that kind of suffering in our hearts and our minds, loving people too much. Someone in our church who was estranged from one of her really, 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 really good friends, uh, some just bad stuff happened, and there was no reason for her to go back and uh, reconcile with this friend, and yet she did, uh, mostly out of a place of wanting to do what was best for her and be there for her in a difficult time she was experiencing, even though this friend was not there for her in one of the most difficult things that she could have experienced. That's loving people too much. No reason to do that, okay? Specifically, if we wanna avoid suffering. We've gotta love people too much. We've gotta train our bodies. Paul talks about self-discipline. Really, honestly, we've gotta train our bodies and our minds to be able to handle some of the stuff uh, that, uh, that comes our way, whether it's heady stuff that we're learning like this, 
or whether it's simply just being able to focus enough uh, on prayer or whatever it is. One of the guys in our church slept on the floor for one year just so he could give his mattress to an international student. Well, actually, he would keep getting mattresses. This is the funny part. Uh, people would give him mattresses every time they heard that he was on the floor. And what's really funny about that is I don't think people were like, oh, I really feel bad for you. They're probably just thinking in their mind like, oh, that would be the worst thing. I'm not going to do that. So I feel better knowing you have a mattress to sleep on, so I'm comfortable. Anyway, every mattress he got, he got four over the course of that year, he passed on to another international student, slept on the floor for one year. That's what we're talking about, training your body. And this is an extreme example. We do this daily in ways. I tried it for like literally three nights and was like, no, it's not going to happen. I, I'm not going to do this. There's no way. And uh, three nights, all I could do. And I'm pretty sure a couple of those nights I went and slept on the couch for a little bit or like had long naps the next day. Okay, we got to train uh, our, our bodies, our minds to be able to deal with suffering, to think through it. Um, and some of that suffering just simply comes as a result of training. If you've ever trained, all right, and many of us are like, yeah, maybe not. But I know, I, I see a few people in here have trained, seriously trained, yeah. Uh, it's painful, it hurts, uh, but it brings about great joy um, when, we, uh, when we can do things that we couldn't have done if we hadn't trained for it. And then the last one, and I think this one is the hardest one, in First uh, uh, Timothy, uh, Paul talks about power, the power the Holy Spirit gives us. Uh, I think the power, uh, probably the best power that we have in regard to this suffering is we have to be able to admit failure. And this might seem like a really strange idea to you, uh, but admitting failure is one of the easiest ways for us to connect back with what God is doing. Because when we admit that we've done something wrong, we've messed up, whether that's sin, whatever, we immediately are open to hearing God's voice in our life. And so much of the time when we don't admit it, uh, we, su we suffer in another way, which is suffering from delusion and from uh, trying our best to like make sense of the stupid stuff we did. We got to just admit failures. Uh, one of the power, most powerful things that we have in Christ is the ability to admit when we're wrong and when we've messed up and we should be the quickest to do it. But there's suffering in that, right? I mean, in, I'm, in some ways, and the irony of all this stuff is the suffering that God has for us actually contributes to uh, his mission. The suffering that the world has for us doesn't do any of that. It's the same kind of suffering, the matrix. It's in our heads. It's virtual reality. It makes no sense, makes no difference in the world around us. That's not what we've been promised in Christ. Um, so yeah, so there you go. Any questions, comments about, the, about this one? I, I will say one thing. Uh, number one, if you're tired of hearing me, and I know many of you are, you'll be glad to know that I believe Leslie's going to preach next week. Yeah, she is. Yeah, that's right. I know I'm looking forward to it too. Um, and uh, also, I think probably after you know that one, we'll start to try to be a little bit more specific in some of the identity things we talk about. And I think some of it will be a little bit easier to grasp. I'm not apologizing, Ben. All right, Ben told me I shouldn't apologize for preaching theological sermons, and I'm not. I'm just telling you sometimes these things can be pretty difficult and they can be hard to uh, understand in the you know, 20, 24 minute time frame. Uh, questions on this one before we, uh, yeah, Angel. Well, let me be careful and say this. I, I don't think we can ever say on the whole somehow like, you know, uh, well, Christians have more suffering uh, than, because you know what I mean? Like compare us to just anybody, Christian or not, living in, um, some of the worst countries to live in. They're obviously going to experience much more suffering. So we're not sort of looking at this on a group level or individual basis. What we're simply saying is that for those people who are suffering, if they were to become Christian, their suffering would increase even more and above what they already experience. So it's more like a baseline of where you're at. 
and then it, 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 it goes up from there. And I think the reason for that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of reasons for it, really, but probably one of the hardest is because, uh, you know, most of that suffering comes from, in our society, uh, which is about self-expression, not about survival, um, uh, having to kind of think more about yourself and self-knowledge and actually work on yourself and not be completely blind to who it is that you are or make excuses for how you behave. And there's just a lot of suffering in that. Loving people, training yourself, and admitting your failures, come on, you know, you don't really have to do that much uh, outside of some kind of, um, you know, higher faith and something beyond just you. Make sense? Yeah. All right, others? Yeah, great. Yeah. The question is that, uh, you know, uh, it feels weird sometimes when we're identifying our suffering as breaking up with someone or some insignificant thing that seems insignificant compared to the rest of the world. I think the whole idea of insignificant, so long as we understand, comparatively speaking, it's insignificant, those things really do matter. And I think anybody in our place, having grown up, again, in a society that's not about survival and self-expression, those things are going to be equally suffering for them. It's, it, it's based on the definition of who you are. I think we've got to be careful with that kind of stuff. Um, some of you grew up in Pentecostal churches where, you know, you'd pray if someone, you know, stubbed their, their toe. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe. I don't, that's, I'm not going to say that's not right, but I think if we, you know, get too caught up in praying for every little thing and pray for someone's stubbed toe in the same way we pray for someone's cancer, uh, we start to lose some of the meaning behind what it is that God does and how he works in those places. So I think, um, I think, uh, yeah, it it can be really specific to individual people. Not to mention the fact that uh, as time goes on um, in your own Christian Faith, what suffering is to you and what good and, and or what purposeful suffering is is going to change quite a bit. I would think in early on, suffering is just anything that makes me feel pain. And as time goes on, I'm getting more and more of an understanding of growing into the kind of pain uh, that God feels. It's a pain that's connected to being in pain for other people. So, others? Maybe one more? Some more? Yeah. Hi, Cheryl. Um, well, I mean, it's suffering, yes, but yeah, I think it's a much different uh, suffering. There's, I, I think a lot of our suffering, as I mentioned, comes from ourself and our own thinking about the world around us. There's very much was coming from outside and from actual ridicule and persecution and a lack of honor in the positions that they were in. Uh, so many of these men, well, Paul in particular, was in a very honorable position, pretty much the most honorable in his society, and kind of took that all and went back, back to the very, very bottom which I think is what a lot of us do uh, when we truly uh, identify with Christ. We go back to the bottom um, and stay there probably for a while. So I think it it was pretty different. And so I'm just trying to make sense of how it connects back because those scriptures are still important for us to understand and learn, uh, particularly because identity is so wrapped up in suffering in the scripture. So yeah, Sterling, and then that's it. Complaining about suffering. I don't think there's anything wrong with complaining about suffering. Job did a lot of it. David, (laughs) David did a lot of it. Um, it's a natural reaction, you know, in the same way that, you know, you might cuss when you, uh, you know, I mean, I don't, but a lot of you do, but <laughs> so it's a natural reaction, I think. And I think the, the bigger deal is whether or not that natural, natural reaction decides, you know, the entire process, you know, or whether you actually, you know, do something about it and kind of get better about it. Right. You know, uh, about a year ago, no, three years ago, my dad was mowing the lawn and uh, had a piece of uh, metal go through his uh, calf muscle. 
It's like go all the way through. He still blames it on me. Um, but okay. <laughs> but uh, boy, she just heard some of the language that came out of his mouth, you know. But I got red face, so. All right. Um, <clears throat> that was a completely unnecessary story. I'll say a prayer for our uh, communion time. If you haven't taken communion with us, uh, have the uh, basket in the back and uh, the juice. We just dip it in and then uh, come back together. We're a little bit loud and ruckus. We think of this as a a love feast. If you want to be more penitent, um, more reverent, if you will, sit down. You can kind of think through something, share with someone. Uh, We don't mean to be irreverent at all in the way we take communion. We believe that, uh, that there's a lot of ways to do it and uh, appropriate ways, and we just want to do it with, uh, with celebrating what God has done through Jesus. Lord, thank you for uh, taking care of us uh, in the most difficult and desperate situations. We have so many testimonies just in this church of people who have gone through very, very, very difficult times. And I've praised you uh, all along the way even despite some of the complaining, whining, and uh, lack of faith. Help us, Lord, to welcome the suffering that comes our way, that we wouldn't just let this be a phrase or an idea in the back of our heads, that we would really try to look uh, for ways to welcome the suffering that, um, whether it be failures or self-discipline or loving people, whatever it is, where we can uh, participate in the glory that you have. We just thank you, Jesus. Uh, none of us can possibly fathom, and maybe never will, how hard it was to do what you did. Uh, Even just three years of it, (laughs) uh, your ministry and your death, we just thank you. We can't even fathom it. You would love us that much is absolutely stunning. We just do this uh, in your name and in order to remember you. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.